On a trip to London, Jennifer and I walked the grounds of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Famous is the location of the Prime Meridian. It's a remarkable location. You can stand in one place and straddle the eastern and the western hemisphere. I mean, it's obviously it's a human invention, not necessarily physically impressive. In fact, if the line weren't drawn down the middle of the street, you wouldn't know that place from any other street in the London area. But it's a vital spot. In fact, prior to that time, each region kept its own time, had their own system for time. And if that had continued, everything we know about time and commerce and trade would be very different today. It would almost be rendered impossible. The Prime Meridian came about through the work of an astronomer, the royal astronomer called John Thelmstead. And he was put it as his life mission to produce a map of the stars in which those could navigate by on the seas. And scientists were able, because of this, to help people find their position on the planet. Answering that fundamental question of physics, but also of philosophy, where am I? Where am I on this great planet? And I think the power of the prime meridian is a great metaphor, if you will, for the fixed position that we need to find ourselves in, in time and space, in thinking and philosophy in our world. And that if I would like to suggest that our prime meridian is God's word, that our anchor, if you will, that our point of direction in which everything else kind of lays in its place comes off of God's word, that God himself has provided that answer to who we are and why we're here. And where we might go from here. This summer we've been in a series and we'll be in a series for four weeks in the Psalms. We're continuing something we've done for five or six summers of just taking out a four or five week chunk of the summer and studying the Psalms. But this summer is rather unique when before we've done sections of Psalms, books of Psalms, shall we say. We're just doing one Psalm this week, or one Psalm during this series, Psalm 119. And it's a rather large Psalm. It's the longest of the Psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in all of the scripture with 176 verses. It's rather unique in that it's an acrostic poem. In the way it's laid out, it takes the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 of them, and creates a stanza of eight verses with that letter starting each line. And then does that how many times? 22 times, because there are 22 letters. So if in our case it would be that all the words of that first stanza would start with an A, and then a B, and then a C, and then a D. One of the things I love about it is it's if each letter is an opportunity for us to praise God. That each letter is an opportunity for us to praise God, not just for who he is, but for the testimony of his precepts and his commandments and his law. That all the letters are used in a sense of there being a fullness and a completeness to the psalmist's writing as he praises God and he thanks him for the scriptures. That he's exhausted and gone with it. And it all is dedicated, if you will, to the glories of God's word. So this summer, as we look at it in these four verses, we're going to take four different themes. Last week, the theme was God's word brings freedom. That all of us are enslaved to something. We're either enslaved voluntarily to God and enjoying in that relationship, or we're enslaved to darkness and the darkness that exists in our world. And this week's theme, we're going to talk about how God's word brings light into our lives. That God's word brings light into our lives. And you know, Psalm 119 is known for kind of being this treasure chest of understanding about God's word. But I don't want us to miss the fact that God's word simply leads us into a deeper relationship with God. 
That the focus here of the author, while on God's Word, is on his relationship with God. While he's constantly seeking guidance and light and comfort, it's not just in the law, but it's also in his love for God. It's not just in statute, but he's seeking spiritual strength for his life. It's not only just in his devotion to the precept, but it's his devotion to the way of God, to the way of the Lord. The beauty of this psalm resounds not just in its teachings about God's word, but its teachings about a relationship with God and how its foundation is in God's word. So each week as we're together, we're going to kind of look at, well, okay, what is the problem? What's going on? Last week it's that all of us are enslaved. And the solution is that God brings freedom. This week it's that all of us live in darkness. All of us live in darkness. And the problem we face in our world is darkness. And the, and the psalmist knew it well. The psalmist speaks throughout Psalm 119 of the oppression that he feels, of the evil that's around him, of the alien world that he appears to live in. He says he's surrounded by darkness, that he's pursued by the arrogant and the proud, that he's humbled, that at times he's, he's sorrowful and even feels disgraced and wants to withdraw. And he cries out to the Lord. He talks about a world that he lives in where people had a range of belief from, from non-committed to profane and evil. And this is the world that he lives in. And it's also the world that we struggle to live in. That We live in a similar kind of world today. The darkness describes the world state. That when you look at our world and what's going on and the issues that we're dealing with, those come out of darkness. Those come out of ignorance and foolishness and the chaos that's in our world. And when that exists, there exists a great deal of uncertainty in our world. Here would be the thought. People are looking for wisdom amongst the darkness. Instead of turning to God's light, they're looking for wisdom amongst the darkness. And what they get is uncertainty and and darkness and confusion and, and, and foolishness and chaos. That there's a battle going on in philosophies as it would exist today or human or worldviews. And then without any anchor, they are plentiful and they are as wacky and in range as far as you can imagine, those worldviews. I'd like to suggest most of them flow out of the idea of moral relativism. In other words, without an anchor, without a universal truth, without God's word, people will go any which way they want. And they will lose that anchor, they will lose that guidance, and they will go to any place. In fact, this week, Derek and I were kind of searching for something that might give you a picture of that picture of moral relativism in our world today. Watch this video. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, 
I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way until you know you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five... Uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you're six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? So when you think about, why did we choose that video? Well, we chose that video to say, what does it say about our culture? It's not about gender. It's not about ethnicity. It's not even about physical height. It's not about the age of the students that were answering those questions because the confusion that they have exists because of the homes they were raised in and the schools they were taught in. It's about the fact that there's a moral relativism in our world today, that there's a lack of what you might offer as a prime meridian, and as such, we live in a world of darkness. Carl Henry, former uh, editor of Christianity Today, writes about how do we engage this? What do we do as followers of Christ when we hear this kind of stuff? Listen to what he says. He says, engaging the culture in particular and apologetics in general goes beyond the emotional reaction and the mere expression of one's opinion on the issue. For example, I don't know if you've been like me, but I've heard stuff like this on the news, and I go, that's crazy, that's the end of America, where are we headed? This is the end of the world. That's an emotional reaction. Then I say to myself, where's that coming from? Henry goes on to say, when one wants to address cultural issues that intersect with biblical truth, they should carefully critique the ideas and events. In a concentrated effort to shed light, God's light on the issue, and remove error in order to proclaim and uphold the truth. Cultural engagement, he says, should be reflective, thoughtful, careful, and attentive to the end of proclaiming truth. See, the, the writer of Psalm 119 wants to take this world that he lives in of darkness and confusion, and he wants to inject into it light. 
He wants to inject into it the truth of God's word so that it might provide guidance, that it might change the way that people think, that it might provide hope in this world. That's where we're headed as we study Psalm 119. The psalmist demonstrates his desire in the psalm that despite his discouragement, he's going to press on both in his study of God's word, but also in the deepening of his relationship with God. That he's eager for understanding and that he's eager for renewal. And throughout the psalm, he's going to contrast these deceitful ways with the ways of God. That he's going to talk about how that might then affect his life. So the problem that the psalmist incurred every day and we encounter every day is darkness. False thinking. Moral relativism. Well, what's the solution? Well, the solution is that God's word brings light. Light is used throughout Psalm 119 in relationship to God's word. In fact, we're kind of grouping them in three different categories. The first is that God's word gives us light for how we walk. God's word gives us light for how we walk. Listen to the psalmist when he says in verses 104 and 105, he says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate the false way. So he says, through the word and the law of God, I get understanding of the world I live in, and therefore I can distinguish between what is truth and what is false, and I will hate falsehood, and I will cling to truth. Then he goes on to say what we just sang, for your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, when you're out in the forest in the middle of the night camping and you have to do your business, I don't know what that business is, but just think of whatever that business is. What's the first thing you grab for as you walk out of your tent? A flashlight. You want to do your business in relative safety. You want to get to whatever your destination is. You realize there are all sorts of hazards out there that you won't see if you're in the dark. But when you flash that light upon it and it guides as you walk to wherever your destination is, this is what he's talking about here. That God's word is a lamp unto our feet. That it is a guide, a light unto our path. This is probably the most famous verse of 119. And it has this practical touch in our lives. It means that the Word of God is more than something just to kind of bask in. We might bask in the sunlight and enjoy its warmth. It's practical. It's light to walk by. It, it, when the believer has what we would call a trained or a practiced eye as a follower of Christ, they can see darkness when darkness is before them. And they can cast light upon it. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3 as he starts the psalm. He says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in that pathway that the law of the Lord sets. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but they walk in his ways. And the psalmist says that as I rest in the Lord, and I will receive the blessings of the Lord as I walk by his path. If I stray from that path, I won't receive the blessings of the Lord. And those blessings come in the form of relationship. I I think of that in practical ways when I go through my week. I I think this week, um, somebody that works for me, somebody that I supervise came to me and kind of made a request of me that honestly I thought was a little of a stretch, a a little outlandish, uh, shall we say. And I was all ready to say, no. And then I thought to myself, just last week, I was there a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching in VBS. We were in the Sermon on the Mount and I was playing the character of Matthew and We were explaining one of the things that's there in the Sermon on the Mount where it says, treat others as you would like them to treat you. And I thought to myself, if I were in that scenario and I was coming to my boss and and asking something that was a little bit of a stretch, that was kind of a demand, what would I want the answer to be? Yes. I said to myself, I'm going to say yes. 
See, that's using God's word as a practical way to provide how we might walk in our day. Similarly, it might be when I might experience or any one of us might experience uh, a temptation, a sexual temptation in our lives. That we might turn to the scriptures in where Thessalonians says, flee sexual immorality. That's practical stuff to live by. It might be that, I don't think any of you do this, but you know, you just want to say something sharp to someone during the day. You know, your wife, you know, your, one of your kids, somebody. You know, kind of a dig, kind of a little bite. And you might recall James says that, you know, our tongue can be a rather destructive force. And, and maybe we should just kind of bind it a little bit. You know, like they do a bit in a horse's mouth or they, they do a rudder on a ship. Those are the kinds of things that God's word provides in a practical way in our walk. The psalmist says it this way. He says, therefore, I consider all your precepts, Lord, to be right. And I hate every false way. How does he know what to hate? Because he knows God's truth and God's light. So that first part of it is this idea of, walk, of light to walk by. The second is that God's word gives us light for how to think. It gives us light for how to think. Verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words, it gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now, I, most of us are fairly well educated. We pride ourselves in our, how much we've read, uh, our understanding of the world that we live in. But I don't know if you're like me. I find myself on a daily basis encountering things that I just don't get. Thinking that I don't get. Actions that I don't get. Things that go on in our culture that I don't get. Why does a person take a semi-truck in the middle of Bastille Day and drive it off the road and down the sidewalk and kill hundreds of people? I don't get that. But when I want to understand that, I can turn to God's word and understand that's false thinking. That's a place where there's no value of life. That's a religion that's maybe intent upon destroying another religion or a people so angry they're intent on destroying another people. And while I don't like that, I at least understand where that fits in a grid of thinking. And that's what he's saying here. The unfolding of your words, it gives me light. It gives me understanding in the midst of this world that honestly I'm often confused by. He goes on to pray in verse 66. He says, Then, Lord, teach me your good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Over 20 times in Psalm 119, the author says, Give me understanding. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Give me insight. He wants to be authentic. He wants there to be no hypocrisy between what he thinks and what he lives. And he knows that that comes from God's word, that it brings light into his life on how he might think. Verse 34 says, give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it. There's the crazy thing. I can look at the world and not have understanding. Have you ever read something in God's word and go, what? What does that mean? And even in that moment, I want to say, Lord, give me light that I might understand even your word which is confusing to me at time. Listen to how he says it in a rather long section in verses 98 through 104. It's, it's the mem section using that letter of the alphabet. I'm going to read the entire division. He says, and notice kind of his contrast particularly, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I want to be wiser than my enemies. How do I get that? From God's commandments. He says, I even have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I'm thinking of those kids on the screen and the school that they might attend and the teachers that teach their classes. And he's saying, you know what? 
I don't mean to be disrespectful of educators. I don't even mean to be disrespectful of teachers. But when you're anchored in God's word and then you compare that to the teaching of them and they don't match, you have more wisdom than them. And don't be afraid to stand up for that. And don't be afraid to speak that. He even goes on to say, I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. In that culture, in that day, age brought the semblance of wisdom and understanding. But when that wisdom and understanding is not of God's truth, he says even the young man can have more wisdom than the aged if his wisdom is based in God's truth. He says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I turn aside not from your rules that you have taught me. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding and therefore I hate every false way. That's what he's saying that we need. That's what he's saying, that the Word of God will bring light into the way that we think. Verse 144 includes it. He says, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I might live. I love that, that I might live, that I might live well, that I might live in the path of righteousness that is yours. So first, it's how to, light for how to walk by. It's light for how to think by. And then thirdly, he talks about God's Word gives us light for how to hope. I don't know if you're like me, but in this world, I often get discouraged. When I see the dominance of this thinking, when I watch something like I watched on the screen, and I think that's crazy. He is not a 6'5 Asian woman. Somebody tell him that and have the guts to do it. And yet they don't. And again, I don't fault them because that's the thinking of this world. And they're just following in line. They don't want to stand out and be thought of as dumb or stupid or intolerant. God forbid. This sense of discouragement that we feel in the midst of that, the psalmist says, God's word brings us hope. Listen to verses 123 to 125. He says, my eyes, my eyes, they long for salvation and for the fulfillment in the future of your righteous promises. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. For I am your servant and give me understanding that I might know your testimonies. He's not just talking about the current nature of his salvation, but he's talking about the hope that he has and the promise of eternal life with God. And that there's one day coming where God will sort all this out and he'll divide falsehood from truth and we will all know it. He says in verse 51, The insolent deride me, but I don't turn away from your law. He, he, he uses it to build confidence. He uses the persecution to build confidence in God's word, not to alienate him from it. The adversity strengthens his hope. The arrogant mock him, but he turns in greater loyalty to the Lord and to the Lord's word. Listen to verses 113 through 117. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And he says, here's the hope. You are my hiding place and my shield, for I hope in your word. He says, depart from me, evildoers. Literally, he's saying that, that, that God's truth and God's word is a shield to him amongst the evildoers and the false thinking. Depart from me, evildoers, that I might keep the commandments of God. Uphold me, Lord, in your promises, that I might live and that I won't be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continuously. He goes on in one, verse 165 to say, Great peace of those who love your law, for nothing, nothing can make them stumble. Those who walk in the light of God's word Enjoy comfort and peace and refuge and shielding. So how is light used in God's word? It's used to talk about how we might walk. It's used to talk about how we might think. And it's used to talk about how we might hope. 
throughout this psalm, one of the things we'd like to do is say, what is this passage or what does Psalm 119 and this idea reveal to us about God's Son? Because God's Word always shows us something of God's Son. And as the coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He said that was his goal, to fulfill the law and the prophets. And after his ascension, Jesus spent the whole, sent the Holy Spirit to inspire both the apostles to both teach and to write down God's word, but also to give us understanding as we might have the Spirit of God of light living inside of us. So Christ becomes the living light available to all of us. That Jesus is the living light that is in the midst of all this darkness around us. And through a commitment to Jesus, who is the living word, we reinforce what the psalmist says here about the word of God. Listen to how it's said in John. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This separation of light and darkness. He says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest their works would be exposed for what they are, their falsehood. But whoever does what is true, whoever comes into the light, so that may be clearly seen through their works, have been carried out in God. That's the kind of distinction we want. That's the kind of light we want to offer, hope we want to offer, clear thinking we want to offer. We do that because we're in Christ. In John 8 it says, and again Jesus spoke to them saying, I, I am the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The problem the psalmist encountered in his day and we encounter today is darkness. False thinking. Moral relativism. God's solution is the light that he brings into our lives through God's word. So what should our response be? We need to learn to live in the light of God's word. We need to learn to how to get God's word into our life every day. How to soak it into our lives so that it might provide guidance to our path. How to soak it into our lives that it might change the way we think. How to bring it into our lives in such a way that it might offer us hope. Last week we learned that as we love God's word, we delight in it. We trust in it. This week I want you to think about how you might respond to it in getting it into your heart and into your mind. Let me give you a simple one that I learned as a new believer. You just, you just take your hand. So you just think of your hand. You got how many, hand, how many fingers there? You have five. Here are five ways to get God's word into your heart and into your mind. First, just listen. Write these down in your notes. Just listen to God's word. Go regularly to church and hear God's word preached. Turn on your radio and listen to the great teachers that are on your radio. Be discerning because some of them are a little wacky, honestly, but not all of them. Find your favorite ones, which I do. Download their podcasts onto your phone and play them on your commute. Just a great way to listen to God's word. A second one, read it. Read it regularly. Read it in a devotional way. Sit down and read large segments of it. Just read it. Just regularly read God's Word in the morning to start your day, in the middle of the day when you're in the grind, at the end of the day when you want to fall asleep in comfort and peace. Read God's Word. Third one would be study it. Develop some of the skills that are necessary to study God's Word, to do what I was taught in college called inductive Bible study. You might ask questions about its context and its author and its purpose and and the key words that are in the passage and and what it says about God and and what it says about Jesus and what it says about sin and, and what it says about the world that we live in. Study God's Word. Now, don't make any one of these a priority over the other. I remember I was so into studying that I didn't think I was into God's Word unless there were five research books out on the table and, and I had a full hour and I was answering all of my dozen questions. Well, that's great, 
But there's a place also in the fourth one would just be meditate on God's word. Take three or four verses, maybe four to seven, read them, and just let God's word, in a sense, steep into your lives. And then the last one, so it's listen, read, study, meditate, and memorize. For those places in your life when the God's word is not present with you, but you're encountering something that you might have God's word memorized in a place in your life. I want to take for a minute just that idea of meditation because I think in our world, meditation's gotten kind of a bad rap. We associate it with yoga. And, and you know, you think meditation is simply just focusing on something, contemplating and reflecting something. So if that's a little figurine set on a table to bring you security in the middle of your stretching, that's a little weird, honestly, because the purpose of meditation is what you're meditating on. I'm not going to gain much from that figurine. If I'm meditating on God's word, I'm going to gain something in that. And so what is meditation? Well, I love the way Donald Whitney, in his classic, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. If you've never read it, read it. He offers the analogy of a tea bag steeping in hot water. Listen to what he says. Your mind, it's a cup of water, hot water. The tea bag represents your intake of Scripture. Hearing God's Word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. I mean, how many of you are satisfied when there's one dip of the tea bag into the cup with the tea? No, it's okay, but... Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much would occur if I let it soak. Reading, studying, and memorizing God's word is additional plunges of the tea bag into the cup. But he offers that more frequently the tea enters the water, the more permeating effect it has on the water. He says meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep. How many wants a cup of tea right now? It's just on a great setting. Letting those flavors extract from the tea bag and the colors, if you watch this, just seep into the heart water until it grows dark. And it's like letting scripture kind of brew into your brain, if you will. And the tea colors create this color in our thinking and color our thinking about God and God's ways and his world. You know, meditation is, I'll give you a simple thought about meditation. It really, I think, just has four stages. When I meditate on God's Word, I just read four to seven verses. Then I just... Oh, this is a tough one for me because my mind's racing, so I've got to have a good setting here, and I've got to make sure that other ideas have been cleared out of my head. I just meditate on those four to six verses for a couple of minutes. I just let them steep, if you will, in my mind. Think about them. And then often a couple of prayers come to mind. One might just be a prayer of, Lord, I didn't get it. Understand, help me understand it. The other would be, Lord, I get it, but it's hard in my life, and I don't want to apply that. Or I, I kind of in between. And then, and then just after you've given it that sense of prayer, give it that sense of contemplation. Take a couple of more minutes and just say, how's that going to apply in my day-to-day? What kind of relationships am I in right now that that makes a difference in? What kind of decisions am I trying to make that that will make a difference in? This is what meditation can do in our lives. Well, God's Word, God's Word brings light. It brings light into the dark world that we live in. God's world brings light to walk by and life to think by and life to hope and gain comfort from. And our response should be to seek it every place we possibly can, to treasure it, to get it into our hearts, to let it fill our thoughts, to take hope and confidence in it and let it make a difference in our lives. See, just as that prime meridian in Greenwich, England made a difference to navigation, it made a difference to the telling of time, it made a difference to physicists into knowing where they were at in terms of relationship of place and time, the scriptures are our prime meridian. And don't miss this truth because it's so vital to it. But God's word, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light 
a light to our path. And here's what's so vital. What we choose to focus our thoughts on, what we choose to focus our thoughts on makes a difference in our outlook on life. Want to be positive about what's going on in our world today? Want to have a focus on God and His truth and His kingdom? Focus on His world. Just set aside some of this crud that's going on and say, I'm going to focus on God's word because it brings light. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word that it brings light into our lives, light to walk by, light to think by, light to gain comfort in and to take refuge in as a place of protection. And Lord, I know that in our lives, as busy as they are, sometimes we are so neglectful of spending time in your word, of just listening to it, of reading it, of studying it, of meditating on it, even of memorizing it. My prayer is for myself and everyone here that we would recommit ourselves to that, not just because it's a great discipline, not because we can brag about it to others, not because we can put a notch on our belt that we had our quiet time today, but because your word brings light to our lives. And without it, we are lost in darkness. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.